Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 218. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are a couple of pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Hey, everybody. This is the first episode in our new series of interviews with Jason Langer. He's a product marketing manager at Pure Storage today, but he didn't start out that way. In fact, in this episode, part one of our discussion with Jason, you're going to hear about his first job in tech and how that taught him some very interesting communication skills. In fact, he was forced to learn those communication skills to be good at this particular job. I won't spoil what it is. Jason describes his early career as being focused on gaining and learning new skills. And that goes along nicely with a great discussion he and I have about asking for more opportunities. As you gain experience, as you want to learn more, as you want to work on new things or new areas, asking for more opportunities. He also shares a story about getting laid off. I know that is something that's top of mind for a lot of listeners out there, so listen closely to hear how Jason dealt with it. We'll also hear how Jason did technology solution deployments for a value-added reseller, and he made a move from that position into more of a technical architecture role. What was that transition like, and what's the difference, really? And then we'll hear how he became a practice manager at the value-added reseller. What does that even mean? Well, let's get to part one of our discussion with Jason Langer. Mr. Jason Langer, welcome to Nerd Journey. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. You bet. Let's start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are. Sure. So uh, I am Jason Langer, as you said. I am currently a solutions marketing manager working at Pure Storage, who focuses on Pure Storage aspects as it relates to VMware and cloud solutions. Well, here's what we're going to do, Jason. We're going to go into the Wayback Machine and start from the beginning, because someone doesn't come out of the gate from getting educated or straight out of high school and go into solution marketing. So tell us right. a little bit about how you got into tech and what made it interesting. So you are going back in the Wayback Machine. Uh, my first actual tech job was in 1998, and I did phone technical support for a company called Sierra Online. And I made a whopping $6 an hour helping people create and make boot DOS disks, bootable DOS disks, so they could free up enough memory to play classic video games like Red Baron or Leisure Suit Larry, if anybody is old enough to remember those games. So that's where I, that was actually my first paid IT job. But what got me there is I'm sure like a lot of folks that I've heard on your podcast or probably yourself is I was a gamer early on. You know, I Atari 2600 when I was a kid, 
first computer was a Commodore 64, Amigas, you know, the whole line of Nintendos, of course. Of course. And then I, you know, I bought my first PC in uh, 1994. I first, and I built it because I couldn't afford like a Dell or like a pa- Hewlett Packard or pa- whatever the, you know, the off the shelf stuff was. And it was an AMD K5. Ever since then, been building my own PCs, got a water cooled one I'm looking at right now for my gaming. And that's just kind of what the start was. And that, as you said, I started at a video game company doing tech support. And then it grew into learning servers and storage and networking and VMware and all this other stuff. But yeah, that was kind of the beginning of it. And I thank my parents for that. My dad bought us the Commodore 64. He snuck us in a 5140 floppy drive for my brother and I. And yeah, we played games on it all the time. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of folks have cited their parents as inspiring them or sort of enabling them to go down the path to whether it was education or ability to work with a specific technology or influence because they worked in that in the technology field and recommended it for so that's a that's a common thread that that I'm calling out right now. So that's good. You you fit the pattern. That's that's a first check mark. <laughs> <laughs> I fit a, a, a type. Yeah. But when I bought my first PC, my parents co-signed for me to get a personal loan to buy it. And it was their way for teaching me how credit worked. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, because it was like 1600 bucks, And they're like, no, this would be a good idea for you to you know work. And you have a monthly bill. And you would establish credit. And that's a whole other nerd journey conversation about teaching IT people how to use you know, manage their money. It's an important but, one. Uh, yeah, they were always super supportive of it. And my dad used to play the games with us too and all that stuff. So it was always great. I think the money management's going to come into a different part of our conversation later on. We'll, we'll save that one. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. The phone support. So this is consumer phone support working with video game players to create these things. Yeah. What was their level of technical knowledge? Was it Was it literally okay, this is a disc, this is where you plug it in, or how how intricate was that and how challenging was it? Yeah, most of that was, it was phone. What you tried to do, quite honestly, was get them to email because you're emailing, you're sending them text of like DOS commands, mm-hmm. like HiMim86, I can't remember all of them, but like, and you're like, all right, now you need to floppy the, you know, format this floppy, right? And you might walk them through that on the phone, but you're like, all right, you know, once you format it, now copy paste or type in this text. And there's no screen sharing. Yeah, there's no screen sharing. You're, it wasn't a thing. You got really good, and it ties into the next job I did after that. You got really good at describing things, because I did phone tech support at Starbucks as well, you know, for corporate at that point. But you're telling people, like, look for the the blue and yellow thing that's shaped like, you know, an octagon or whatever when you're plugging it in. And yeah, it was an interesting job. We had a game called ProPilot, so Flight Sims. And I think 1998 Flight Sims, USB wasn't out yet. So you're dealing with parallel ports and daisy chaining of flight yokes <laughs> you know windows 95 maybe 98 i look back at it and i just kind of laugh like it's it it, it was it was kind of crazy and i uh, but it was a great learning experience it got you got used to talking to people on the phone or you know or like what we're doing over zoom or over you know the, the podcast software and that led to going into starbucks and again doing technical support for the stores right so if a, a store had a problem because all those of course, all the uh, terminals, the pay terminals, they're networked together and they phone home back to the mothership and this stuff. And I'm like, okay, you got to reboot the modem. I'm like, well, what's the modem? It's, I'm like, okay, it's a Cintercom modem. It's gray. It's got rainbow stripes on it. It's going to be about six by four. Probably should be 
under the desk, some, you know, so you were, you were describing these things and walking people through how to troubleshoot this stuff that obviously, you know, are not technology is not their, their background or not what their expertise are, you know, or you're trying to help them like, okay, I want to dial into your system, you know, walk them through like how to do that. So, and then of course there was corporate users too, that called up and like, my office isn't working. I'm having problems with word or whatever. So I did that for about two years between the two. And it was a very good learning lesson. I, and I carried that through my whole career of always looking at other folks and knowing if they took, had a technical support background, they kind of knew you had like this, like badge of honor, this like scar, you, you've probably been called the worst things possible, or you've dealt with some really trouble, you know, troublesome problems or whatnot. And you're just there trying to help people. Yeah, for sure. You, you deal with some folks who are really frustrated, really upset, and they just want something fixed as quickly as you, as you can do it. And you're the person who has to figure it out. And, and it may actually be a problem that you've never had to solve. But what's, what's super interesting here, Jason, is that you had to figure out what the tech savviness level of the person on the other end of the phone was and cater your explanation to fit that profile. So to, yeah. your, to your point, if they knew what the modem was, cool, that's easy that's great. If they don't even know what a modem is, that takes a little more explanation. That takes a little bit longer. My, my theory is that as you talk to more people with different ranges of experience, you're able to get a faster sense of someone's experience when you get on the phone with them and can solve problems a lot faster as a result. For sure. You can tell, vice versa, you can tell by if maybe they've had a similar problem before and maybe they've called support. And so there might be familiar with it, right? For my whole career, that's always been really helpful. Of like, sometimes you, you have to explain high, hard concepts in very simple terms. Yeah. Right. And you start kind of digging through your bag of analogies or things, you know, things that you know that are going to cross a lot of gaps for folks, right? Like certain, you know, everybody knows about a car or understands how someone, how a car works. So if you kind of use that as an an analogy or whatever, right? So you kind of just get creative and try to find these descriptive ways of solving some problems that's not really about the technology or the piece of equipment itself. It's like, you're just trying to identify it for them. Yeah, and you may even have to say, hey, Jason, when you say car and I say car, I don't think we're talking about the same thing based on what you just told me. Yeah, my car has six wheels. And you're like, well, mine has four. You expect to be able to drive at 120, but we don't have an Autobahn out here, so. Right. Yeah, it's not going to work. I love it. You actually worked for Disney at some point, the House of Mouse. I did. How'd, how'd that come about? Again, I've kind of mentioned, like, there's a couple things that you're going to hear. Like, we mentioned the pattern about video games. Uh, you're going to hear a thing about relationships throughout my my story here, like my, my arc. So doing phone support jobs usually only lead to potentially more more phone support jobs, unless you find a way to kind of break out of that. So then I started being at Starbucks, I got more into actual IT, like let's call it like corporate IT. Windows Active Directory didn't exist yet when I was there. So I was like learning more about NetWare and permissions and file shares. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, like it kind of started to scratch an itch. So I bought my first like Windows NT4 book, you know, like TCPIP book or whatever, like for one of the early MCSC exams, right? Just to kind of like and I, and I worked graveyard, I forget, I worked graveyard at Starbucks. So at night when the phone wasn't ringing, I was reading the super hotness of a TCPI book, 
you know, at two o'clock in the morning trying to stay awake. With a cup of Starbucks coffee beside you or no? Yeah, of course. You had all the coffee you could drink. For, you know, that's that's a staple. But yeah, so I was learning that stuff. And then my brother had a friend that was a systems admin at Walt Disney. Well, actually, at the time, it was called Go.com, if, if that rings a bell to anybody. We'll, we'll call it Disney for all intents and purposes. Um, he worked on Disney Internet Group, which ran the web properties up here, which was all hosted out of Seattle. So I live up in Seattle. So ESPN.com, ABCNews.com. Some other sites were actually hosted here in Seattle. And my brother had a friend that worked there and they were just like, hey, I know a guy, the manager on the team is looking for a guy to come in and be a backup jockey, aka just be the guy that backs up the servers. Doesn't pay a lot. You know, it's a good gig. It's an entry level. And I'm like, sure, I'll go apply. So I applied and the gentleman's name was uh, Todd Johnson that I interviewed with. That was the manager. And for whatever reason, you know, he hired me. I don't know if I was cheap enough or whatever, because I was making at this time I was making like $12 an hour at Starbucks or something. So I became the, the backup guy at Walt Disney Inter- Group, Internet Group at, in 2000. And we had, this is back in physical server days, like one server to one web server, one server to a SQL server. Like we're going, we're in the way back time machine a little bit here. And I backed up, uh, was responsible for racking up, you know, something like 2000 servers and cataloging DLT tapes and offsiting them and doing recoveries of email systems and stuff like that. So that's how I kind of cut it, started cutting my teeth in the whole Windows systems admin world. I imagine even going from phone support to the backup person or backup resource was a route to a higher, a little bit higher paying gig. Is that accurate? Yeah. I went to about $12 an hour to about $20 an hour. Okay, almost double. I have no problem talking about it. So I'm just telling you, like, it was, yeah, yeah. It was that journey. I was like, I was like, yeah, great. I'll do this. It sounds great. So 100%. And that's an important one for the, for the people listening because as you end up progressing, a lot of times, some of the reason is monetary, right? You want to progress oh, yeah. your career so that you can make more money and have more earning potential, but also do, do more things. So it's not that phone support is bad if you do that. Yeah, no, remember, this is 2000. So folks listening now, they're probably like, that's not a lot of my life. This was 23 years ago now, right? So in that early time, it was all about learning new skills. And at that time, IT, not that IT is not hot now. I mean, it was like super hot, but that's back when they used to do the MCSC boot camps and all these kind of like paper cert stuff. Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer, is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. And it was like, the sometimes the best way to get my, more money was like, you're not waiting around at once a year for a 4% raise, you just, you kind of job hopped a little bit and your, your salary would go, you're like, oh, I'll be here for a year, learn some new skills. And now so-and-so is going to pay me X amount of more money. So maybe I go work over there for a little while. And you were talking about even leveling up from the backup to learning networks, learning windows. Yeah. So I started off as the backup, backup guy. Uh, so I had to learn at that time it was backup exec and Legato networker, which Dell EMC eventually bought. And but then I got my, started working on my very first, my first SAN, like it should be like a, a toy box or something. But we uh, deployed a HP EVA, which was one of the quote unquote first virtualized storage arrays. So that's when I started. So this is about 2001 or two, if I remember right. So I started cutting my teeth on learn, getting more into like storage and SAN and, you know, it was fiber channel. I think it was a one gig, maybe it was two gig fiber channel, you know, because they're like, hey, you're the backup guy. Why don't you learn? That's kind of data related. So why don't you learn a little bit more about storage? All that stuff was like early, especially this was dot-com days as well. 
just learning something new, adding something else to the, you know, to the tool, tool belt and kind of learning it and getting, you know, starting that certification train. Like that's when it all kind of started for me early. Then it's like, okay, I'm going to go learn MIC data switches and get certified, or I'm going to go learn MCSC NT4 and, you know, start getting certified, which of course we'll get into on the VM, like led into a whole bunch of VMware stuff, you know, down the road. But again, that was kind of like the beginning of all that. I was 20, 24, maybe 25, depending on what year that kind of falls into. But yeah, they all kind of just started building on top of each other. And it was just an, it was an opportunity of, Hey, you're here. We've got this new thing. Can you take, can you do it? And it was like, yes. Like just never, you know, just say yes to the opportunity. Yes, I will figure this out. I would love to learn that. Yeah. Well, the first day when the SAN arrived, like I came in, the user manual was on my desk. A printed like manual of like 600, you know, like a big thick book. How to use your, e- I can't remember what it said, but I'm like, oh, I guess I'm reading this. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm learning this. Time to you start know. taking notes. Yeah. So it sounds like different people made suggestions and you kept saying yes. Did that eventually turn into you asking for opportunities to jump into something new? As I got further into my career, yes. As I got more comfortable, you know, as I kind of got my, my sea legs, the the more, that probably came out more when I went to work at Microsoft. So Disney was great. Uh, unfortunately, I had to leave Disney. Uh, the dot-com bubble did burst and they laid off in November, no less, right before my birthday and Christmas, they laid off like 40% of the operating staff. Like they literally, like we all showed up, they put us in a conference room and it was like, Hey, when you guys leave, there's going to be a banker box on your desk. Ooh. I mean, they said it nicer than this, but you know, like, sorry to say you'll get a kit. There'll be a kit and blah, 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 blah. Really good financial lesson in that conversation that we, <laughs> for your other podcast some other day. So that led me to being unemployed and then applying for jobs. And I landed at Microsoft where We were building out some data centers for this thing called Xbox Live that hadn't actually launched yet. Um, And they were looking for a guy to do the SAN stuff. And I was like, hey, I'll do that. Like, I can do that. And, you know, I've experienced with HPV, you know, and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. So it was more like now it's like, okay, feel comfortable. Maybe I'm a level 150, not a level 100. I don't know. And then just kind of like going in and being more like asking like to your point of like, Hey, I think I can do that. How can I get involved in that project? Or how can I help with that piece of the build out? Um, that type of stuff. And that, again, that started more so after I, again, felt more comfortable and had some, had some experience and didn't feel like, Hey, I'm the new guy that's just learning, you know, windows NT, uh, for the first time. When you made those asks of, Hey, I'd like to do this. It's very interesting. I'd like to learn that. What was the reception on the other end? Uh, I'm just curious was it most of the time, oh, yeah, sure, or was it sometimes, oh, you don't need to know about that? A little bit of both. I mean, it's it's all dependent. It, on the Microsoft side, it, there was a, a a rope that you had. Like, you could go, I could go so far because I was working there as a vendor. I wasn't a full-badged employee. So there were certain things that were kind of like, well, you can go this far, but since you're not an, a badged employee, there's stuff that we want to keep in-house, for lack of a better term. And I understood that. I like, I got it. Like, I, I get it. You, there's some stuff that you know you want a badge an employee to take care of or handle. Great, but they were the my boss on that team and the team that we had around us. Like, we had to do so much. The first year was about building out the data centers for the actual Xbox Live launch the following year. So it, it wasn't it wasn't too terrible, but there were some limitations, and and I understood that. And I didn't it didn't bother me because, like I said, I I got it. 
if there was if that not that might be a different conversation be like well then the, some of the questions of why <laughs> you know might come up but exactly you know, I, i've always tried to be try to be a little bit mindful of what's going on around me and not as you know not not assume it's a slight or whatever you know it's like okay that makes sense and maybe that's good advice for people listening if you have asked to take on more work something slightly adjacent to what you're doing and had the door slammed on you maybe it's something you don't see any other tips on people who may be getting shut down asking to take on more things when that has happened, even in you know, even later on in my career, I mean, because sometimes people are like, "Hey, we've got somebody else in mind." You know, we, we we're going to give that to Nick, and if it's my manager or whatever, I might follow and be like, "Hey, you know, that's great. I understand you're, you know, Nick is now going to run with." I'm just curious, like, what could I do to be? I would ask the question, like, what 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 could I do to be better positioned for the next opportunity, or like, is there something that I need to learn, or is there something more I need to be involved with, or what, like? You have to kind of take your take control of your own career a little bit sometimes, you know, you, but you also have to know when to do that, right? If you're not in good standings or if things don't, if it doesn't feel right, like you just kind of say, got it, <laughs> you know, and you just kind of walk out the door or whatever. But there's other times if it's something that, that was important to you and you want to know, you know, ask, ask those questions. And that goes to a lot of things. Like if you're looking for promotions or whatever, and, and hopefully you, the other thing is hopefully you get valid feedback on those, right? And that's a whole other thing where depending on who your management is and the manager. So hopefully you're getting the good, like, Hey, well, Nick had experience here and we felt like you could use, you know, use a little time or, and then you say, well, can you, and then you go like, is there a shadow opera? Like, there's just lots of ways to kind of stay. Yeah. Stay active in that conversations. Like, Hey, I'll take on the extra work. I'll be a shadow. I'll, you know, I'll sit on the meetings. I won't say anything, <laughs> you know, like just let me listen. Yeah. The shadow. So it's is like, smart. I'm a passive observer here. I like that. That's what I was thinking too. Like, can I just shadow this person and try and learn some things from them? And of course you have to worry about, is that person open to that? But I really like what you said about asking, because if you don't ask for what you want, it is very possible that whoever's leading the project, whether it's your boss or someone else, doesn't know that you wanted that, number one. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get an answer. It may not be the answer you want. And if it's not the answer you want, to Jason's point, well, what can I do to be ready for the next one or the next time? Or can I get in on this somehow? You know, if, if it's not the best option, can we have the next best thing or good option? Yeah, I just I just don't take it as a definitive. I mean, don't take it as the definitive. Just no follow up, ask some questions. But I mean, that, but that again, that mileage may vary depending on the situation and folks are, and everybody can probably read that. They know their, hopefully they know their bosses, they know the situation, but there's sometimes you can do it and there's other times you let sleeping dogs lie maybe. So choose your battles. Is it okay if I ask about the layoff thing? Yeah, go ahead. I have an open book. Because we're recording this during a time when we've seen news of a lot of companies laying tech workers off. So it might be helpful if you don't mind sharing what your mind goes through when something like that happens? Boy, I, I want to answer this because, you know, there might be people that don't know me and I, I feel like not being egotistical or whatever, right? So like, I'm trying to make sure, like, it was hard at first. Like, of course, you take it somewhat personally, right? This And the scenario for me was like, I made it to the third round of layoffs. Like, they were coming and I was in the third wave. 
And my whole thing was like, well, I'm the guy that does the sand and the backups. I'm the only guy that does that. There's no way that they're going to get rid of me, you know, because who's going to do that, right? Well, that may, that lasted till the third round. <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, you're out. So it was kind of hard. But the one thing I'll say is like, for me personally, what and what I would share to people is like, it's not personal usually. I mean, I'm sure there's sometimes, you know, if you've done something wrong at work, there's something there, right? But if you're a good worker and it just comes down to bean counters or somebody in finance figuring stuff out, like don't take it personally. But the, on the flip side of that was I had f- confidence in my skill set. I knew I would find a job afterwards. And, I, and that's where this is the egotistical part that I, I worry about how this is going to sound on the recording. But I got laid off in November, told my wife, you know, and this is Thanksgiving's coming up and we had a huge Christmas holiday trip planned with my family. And it's like, what are we going to do? We're not going to have any money. And, you know, and I'm like, like, it'll be fine. You know, it'll be fine. But here's this, you know, like, here's the thing we have to realize, like, I'll get unemployment. And the thing, and the thing I knew is like, I am not going to get any job interviews for like a month at least. Like, think about it. You're laid off in the middle of November. Like, I'm not going to see any movement. You know, the goal should be, we'll think February timelines for a new job. Let's kind of just tighten the belts a little bit. There's things that I can work on. I started working on some more certifications to stay busy, you know, working the network. Now, this is pre-Twitter and pre-LinkedIn and pre, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. but, you know, work again, I'll go back to some more relationships, working the relationships and talking to folks. I ended up kind of just keep my head above water and I ended up starting at Microsoft on like January 20th. So I was laid off in November 15th, I was out of, basically out of work for two months um, and picked up another job starting in January. Now, granted, I don't know what the, econ- I didn't pay attention to the economics, like, hey, was everybody laying off? You know, the dot-coms were obviously struggling, but I, I trusted myself that I'm a little bit, you know, I always say I'm a little bit better than the average bear. You know, <laughs> I'm a seven out of 10, maybe a six out of 10, whatever. And I just felt like I would find something and, and I, unfortunately I did, so... But I didn't take, I, I think, I think the thing is like, it's business. It's not a reflection on you. It's not, Jason's a, not a good worker, or a good person, or Nick's not a good person, or a good worker, or, or Jason had it out for Nick. He definitely did. He definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen, but I'm I'm sure that's very minor. I think I've not been through it. Okay. I can't say that I have been through it, but I've known several people who have had to go through this and there are a lot of emotions that come up and. It it's it has to be super hard not to question. Oh, is there something wrong with me? What did I do? You can go down some rabbit holes on that. Yeah, for us, it was it was probably it was actually one of the best financial things that ever happened to me and my wife. Oh wow! We had a house payment. We had two car payments. We had cell phones. We had the biggest internet package. We had the biggest cable TV package. And I'm not saying we weren't paying our bills, but like we were living. I don't want to say paycheck to paycheck, but like we were, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, like I actually took my severance check and paid off my wife's car. Uh, We turned off our, our cable, all these other things. And we haven't had cable. I haven't had cable since 2002, like cable TV. That's so cool. But there's things that that's helped. We've never had two car payments at the same time. That was just a dumb idea, but I was, you know, 24. It's a beautiful thing to not have two car payments. Right. Don't yeah, but don't take it personally. In the, and it will the sun will come up. People will find other jobs and potentially better jobs. Yep, could be an opportunity you didn't realize. And to your point, lean on those personal network connections. See if you can get yourself some help. 
sorry, when I started at Microsoft on the team, I, I brought along two of my buddies that got riffed from Disney. I got hired. They're like, hey, we need two more. And I'm like, I got the exact guys for you. Uh, a buddy of mine named Steve and a buddy of mine named Mike. They joined. And yeah, it was, and that was great. We worked a lot. We worked on a fun project, but you know, it was, we were friends and it was, it was a good time. If anybody has any questions, hit me up on Twitter. We can talk directly. And, and Jason's a great guy to talk to. You should definitely take him up on that. How about this one? At, at some point, you became more of an architect as opposed to what we would call an administrator. Can you describe that progression a little bit for us and what the real difference is between what we might call a systems administrator and more of an architect? And I would call that like the act two of my career. I'm a big movie buff. I would say so act one, I was definitely was like the up and coming, meaning doing up and coming in my career, phone support, sysadmin stuff that we've touched on, whether it be at Disney, Xbox, there's a couple other things sprinkled in there, right? Sysadmin work is a lot of like, there's some project work in there, but most of it's break fix work, I would say. Like maybe you're refreshing something every now and then, but a lot of times it's helping somebody fix a problem or server's not working or whatever. And when I got into kind of the quote unquote architecture type role, that was like act two of my career. And that's when I actually moved into working at a VAR and being a consultant. That kind of came from, <laughs> we won't go over the resume, but I switched, jo- I switched jobs a lot. Like part of it, like we talked about was getting paid, but the other part was like, I like to build things. I, I figured, finally figured that out later on. It's like, I've always liked Legos. I like building PCs. Like I don't like maintaining things, like sitting there and just waiting for the thing, the widget to break or wait for the latest updates. So that got me into the VAR life, as I call it, their value reseller life. And that progression of getting out of the idea of my day-to-day job being break fix, and I'm, I'm being very generic here as a term, and getting into and like having business outcome conversations or problem solving on a larger scale for, for customers, right? Like some of it is still going in and saying, hey, I've got this little problem. How do I fix it? And it might be, oh, here's a new piece of software or new storage device or whatever. Or it's meeting with higher level executives at a bank and they're like, hey, we now have to, we've hit a certain threshold of assets and we need to make sure that we have a full business continuity disaster recovery plan, right? And they're not as concerned with the things below, meaning like, are we doing stretch layer two? Are we using OTV? Are we using VXLAN? They don't, I mean, they don't care about any of that. They're like, I just need to make these requirements. And then it's that conversation of business outcomes and how you achieve those. And that's kind of where the architecture piece comes in of understanding the technology to a point of not all the way down into the weeds at that level, because that's not really what the role is. It's knowing what the, the software or the heart of the, dev- the solution is, right? Because it could be different things, obviously. But how you use that technology to deliver and solve business outcomes that the folks that are paying the bills care about and having those kind of conversations. And that's kind of what I was doing at uh, GCSIT, the bar I was at. I mean, I started off as a deployment guy, but kind of moved up into doing the architecture work. That's kind of more of it. So you, you, you get the technical chops, right? You get the speeds and feeds conversations, but then it's more like you start trying to figure out like, how do I engage with like the managers? And then it's like, how do I engage with the directors? And how do I engage with the VPs? And it's like, you kind of build up that talk track and that, that conversationalism and you know, it's not about, hey, let me go to the whiteboard and draw a really cool diagram. 
you know, or make a really cool Vizio. You and I were joking about, you know, is architecture about Vizios. 100% making good diagrams helps, but that's only part, that's only part of it, right? What made you want to, to progress in that direction? So you, you mentioned, I want to go and be able to talk to frontline managers, directors, VPs. I don't think everybody wants to do that. And I think to your point that you have to learn how to talk in the language that those folks understand and yeah. are looking for. For me, it was the, the, the passions have to, has to be there, right? If you're not into it, you're not into it and you're not going to not going to go there. That's not your career arc or your path. I got more involved on the business side at the VAR as well. You think more about like how businesses are working, right? And that started to intrigue me. The technology was, the passion for the technology was there, but knowing every knob and lever and checkbox to click was kind of like, I'd been doing that at this point, you know, for 15 years. I'm kind of over that. I want to know how it works. I want to know what it does, but I don't need to know that I want to check this box for super fast and, you know, uncheck or turn this thing for that. Um, so it was more like, how, how do I advance? And that started interesting me more of like having those conversations. And I actually really like writing documentation. It, it is fun. That's an architect. Like does, that's part, an element of an architect's job is documenting, not just making the videos, but like writing out words, <laughs> you know, and documenting out. And I actually really enjoy that. Oddly enough, I never would have guessed that. But those kind of things just kind of progressed and it was showing, again, that business value, those business cases, not always having the stump, the chump conversations. Like, I enjoy those. Those are great. But it's like sometimes like, oh, man, I don't, I don't want to have an IOPS drag race conversation again or, or a feature comparison matrix conversation. When you were the person who was doing the implementation at the, at the value-added reseller, were you given the implementation plan by someone who was in an architect role or did you have to come up with that on your own? So at first, no, when I first got, got there, no. And that wasn't for lack of trying. It was just, everybody's just moving a million miles an hour. But as I moved up in that organization, became, you know, did the architecture work and then became a practice manager and then kind of the head of the systems team, those types of things came out because we got into bigger projects you get bigger opportunities, you're working with larger customers, those types of things start to become expected, right? If you're going in and you're doing a quick, you know, VMware deployment, it's only a couple hosts, whatever, the, the expectation is you're not going to turn over a run book to them, more, more, more than likely. I'm using a wide brush here. But to, to that example of the, the bank or the credit union, like they wanted implementation guides and like, and all that, that's all technical writing and stuff like that. So we got to that point I helped develop that along with some of the other folks on the team. I'm not going to take full credit for it. I'm not saying that, but we, we got more process oriented and kind of that process where now it's like, if I was the deployment engineer, I had at least a book kind of built with some diagrams. Like I knew what was the expectations were because usually, you know, usually the person that sold it compared to the person who designed it. And then the person, those usually are not the same in any organization. They might be involved a little bit, but they're no. They're not owning it from cradle to grave. Hopefully they're all communicating though. Right. They're, you know, we, we did that. We had turnover meetings, like all that kind of process was built in, was started to build that in. That goes back to another comment of relationships because I started knowing other folks in the VMware community that worked at other bar, other VARs. So you can sort of like, you'd be frenemies. It's like, especially if they're in your same territory, but you kind of hear like how other people are doing things and you would kind of, kind of figure out how, 
how other folks are doing it, look at your own processes and just say, all right, we can fit that in or do that. So, Yeah, and real quick aside, we talked a little bit about what partners were and the difference about different classifications of partners in our discussions with Andrew Miller that I'll link back to for other people. But some partners resell software and or hardware and potentially have a competency in a particular software. But I just wanted to point that out. Because you mentioned that you are or were a practice manager. Can you explain what that means and what your responsibilities were as a result? Yeah. Side note, real funny that you mentioned Andrew Miller. We'll do a little name game here. Andrew Miller worked with a guy named Jason Nash, who was like the main VMware guy at Vero, who I met at VMware PTAB, and he was kind of a mentor to me. So that's just, that's kind of full circle. Yeah, right. Like again, back to that relationship thing that's going to come up. Like, so that's that's funny. And Andrew's Andrew's actually at Pure. He's a great guy. From the practice man to your practice manager question, I've seen it implemented a little different ways depending on who you talk to. But really, it was like I was at first I was the practice manager for end user compute as it related to VMware, right? So Horizon View and then Workspace One and blah blah that portfolio. So what that meant was I was kind of like, how do I train? Not me train them specifically, but get the right training for our SEs to be competent both in pre-sales, post-sales, design and architecture. How do we come up with standardized bill of materials? And like, who, what pieces of software and hardware do we put in our portfolio to build that solution? Meaning like, okay, yes, it's going to be a VMware stack, but are we going to use, you know, we use Dell Compute and this is going to sound really funny, but like the very first EUC job I did, I deployed a pure storage array. Guess what? I work at pure storage now, you know, um, back in 2013. So it was kind of like figuring out how you run that practice and think of it like as its own business unit or its own entity. We're going to do X amount of revenue through EUC work and projects. So whether that's consulting, deployment, maybe somebody just buys the solution and they deploy it themselves or whatever. So that's kind of what the practice for us, that's what practice management. And then I was, so I was also meeting with like our VMware representation of like, hey, we need to make sure you guys are selling X amount of Horizon. You know, I'm meeting with Dell folks and they're saying, hey, you need to sell X amount of servers and NVIDIA saying you need to sell X amount of GPU. You know, like, so in, in the VAR world, you have many, I always say you have many masters because everybody wants you to sell their thing. Right, because it amplifies revenue for whatever company or, or vendor you're partnering with. 100%. They can't scale. That's why partners exist, right? Like it's either to help with deployment or they can't scale their sales force to hit everybody. That's just kind of one. Of t- I mean, there's lots of reasons, but those are kind of some of the main reasons why partner that, that partner ecosystem is important for VMware and other companies that use, you know, use the channel to to sell through. So that's what the practice manager was. So I was like coming up with business plans and figuring out how we're going to position this and how we're going to attack this, how we're going to do assessments, how, what a statement of work looks like, all that kind of stuff. Right. So kind of that architecture piece, but also a little bit of the business piece of like, how do we make money off doing this to make sure we're not losing money off deployments, that type of stuff. Did the technical teams, pre-sales, post-sales implementation, did they all report to you in this role or was it like a dotted line kind of thing? Not at that time. Yeah, it's more like a dotted line because I was I would help them with pre-sales conversations, or like I said, or the enablement and the training and whatnot, but I was not like their manager. You know, I wasn't making sure that, you know, they were taking PTO or their time cards were in, or, you know, any of that type of stuff. It was just more like, hey, and 
I should also say, like, it was also not just enabling the SEs. It was also enabling AEs to have those conversations as well. Those are account executives or full-on salespeople. Right. People use different terms. But yeah, so it wasn't just the SEs. I should make that clear. That's only one part, right? Now you had account folks. It's like, okay, what kind of use cases are good? You know, healthcare, like what kind of stuff you run into healthcare? Usually they're looking for, you know, they want to use iPads or they want to use key card or key fobs to like quickly log in as they move from patient room. So understand kind of like the business value and those types of conversations, right? So it was, it was the selling side and the technical side. Well, you actually manage the relationships with these partners. You were talking about it earlier. That's kind of similar to managing employees in a way, because you can, you can kind of hire and fire them, can't you? So when I, I did the practice manager stuff for a little while, then I became, I forgot the title, but then I kind of ran the SE organization for the the system side. And what that means, because we were we had networking folks and we had systems, meaning like they did the server, the storage, that type of infrastructure. And we had a networking team that did all the, the route switch firewalling. Um, but then I also managed the business relationships with our with our partners, meaning the vendors that we resold. So the Veeams of the world, the Pures, like I said, the Dell EMCs at that time, VMware, you know, and everybody's like, hey, you need to do so many webinars or conferences, trying to keep everybody happy. And it makes for strange bedfellows, you know, but it was it was fun. We were successful at it. I'd, I'd like to think um, we won an award. I got to shake hands with Pat Gelsinger and accept the award for for our VMware practice, which oh, wow. was really cool. It could be it could be a headache too, you know. I so there's like sometimes you get some really weird, interesting conversations, right? And hopefully back to our like it's business, it's not personal. I try to do my best to navigate those. I always try to be upfront and honest and kept my word with folks. That was a mini mat like I said, that was a mini masters kind of management. Because you know, they all want you have so many people certified. you talked about the master services competency, like that you have to have so many certain SE certified on their platforms and yeah, that type of stuff. So that was a lot of fun. If somebody out there is looking to switch jobs and you want to get a bunch of certifications, working for a value-added reseller as a consultant could be a really good thing because they need those certifications to keep the relationships hot with the technology vendors that they're partnering with. Yeah, there's um, financial reasons for a lot of that, that that make it nice. And when I went to the VAR scene, I had already mentioned before I was doing certs. I at this point I was kind of dr- heavily drinking the VMware Kool Aid. I was like, oh, I want to make this more of my career. So that was very attractive to folks that I was talking to. Is like, I came with those certs. Like they didn't have to sit, they didn't have to pay to send me to training. I already, I don't know if the VCP still costs money, but you know that was like a there used to be a training class you had to pay for to even sit the. I mean, you could still sit the exam, but you couldn't earn the cert. If I remember right, without actually you know sitting mm-hmm. the training. Hundred percent. So yeah, if uh, you know for folks that are out there, like it's a good arc customer side the the var for i mean there's a lot of value i mean you could doing that um i learned a lot like doing the var stuff stuff that i had no idea that i was even getting into when i <laughs> when i got out of working like on you know being a day-to-day sysadmin or what we would refer to being you know on the customer side it was interesting but i have to, i'll it'd be remiss if i didn't bring up the relationship thing real quick nick i don't know how we're doing on time but doing fine i got the var job or the opportunity to, to interview with some VARs because when I worked at Microsoft, I met it. I worked with a gentleman who I'm still friends with to this day, who who introduced me to a woman that I'm that I became friends with and still friends with to this day, who managed the Seattle 
area VARs for VMware. So I sent her my resume and she did all the legwork for me of getting my resume in front of the various VARs in the Seattle area. Wow. Relationships matter. Yeah. If I would tell anybody, like, again, I think I'm above average, you know, from a, from a smart perspective, but the relationships and being a kind of a people person that is goes so hand in hand with my career. I feel very fortunate in that regard. So making relationships, building those bridges, and it's a lot easier now with all the, I sound like the old man yelling at the cloud, but in the last 10 years, those things have gotten, it's gotten way easier to kind of build those bridges. Completely agree. In this role where you manage the solution engineers, systems engineers, you were managing the partner relationships at the same time? If you're someone out there who's listening and looking to take the next step in your career, maybe working for a value-added reseller is the next step. It's a great way, like Jason and I talked about, to get technology certifications. And it's a it's a really good way to work with a variety of different kinds of customers instead of just in one customer environment if you work for a specific company. It gives you a wide range of experience that's really valuable and you can work with different technologies different types of products different vendor products that make up a single solution for a customer of the value-added reseller on the certification piece some people work on those at night when they have time early mornings during lunch for jason he had to study when he had time and that was When things were a little bit slower, he was working overnights and he was studying a book and he had a number of certifications that he ended up taking to this value-added reseller that really made him an attractive hire. I love the discussion of his phone support job and explaining hard concepts in simple terms. You have to be able to do that for less technical individuals on the other side of the phone, but what's a really interesting parallel to that is You have to be able to do that when you are an architect. It's not that you have to dumb it down, but you do have to explain what kind of outcome do I get from using this technology? Yeah, it's great. It's the new hotness. It's the new thing. It's exciting. It's faster. But what does that do for the business? How does that solve a problem? I think the being able to explain hard things in simple ways is a skill that not everyone has, along with meeting someone you're speaking to at the appropriate technical level. You've probably done it just as I have, launched into a discussion that was way too technical for the person you were speaking to, and hopefully, as that happens to you more and more, you'll be able to notice, course correct, and get faster at detecting what's the right level of technicality for this conversation. If you're someone out there who is asking for more, asking for more projects to learn new things in your current role so that you can see what else is out there, work with other technologies, continue to build those skill sets, sometimes the answer is no. It may not be no forever, but it may be no right now. So you may have to think up some creative ideas 
for what more means for you. Maybe it's more training instead of different types of projects. Or maybe it's shadowing someone else like Jason talked about without even saying a word. Jason tells us that getting laid off was a financial wake-up call for him. He and his wife were keeping up with the Joneses and they became a little bit better stewards of their finances as a result. More careful about the spending habits. He also tells us not to take the layoff personally. That has to be one of those pieces of advice that's really hard to hear and really hard to execute on. Hopefully you got a little bit of insight into what it means to manage a practice. For Jason, he managed the end-user computing practice for the value-added reseller, and he was in charge of the technology partners and maintaining the relationships with those partners. When you work for a value-added reseller like that, you are wanting to build solutions and deliver solutions to your customers, and it's probably going to be a multi-vendor solution. So you need stuff from a hardware vendor, a couple of different software vendors, maybe multiple hardware vendors, multiple software vendors, and someone who can execute on the implementation at the right scale with the right architecture that meets the customer needs. So it's really important that you pick the right components of the solution you're going to go to market with, with your customers. It works, it's validated, it's effective in delivering the things that you want to deliver for that practice so that your value-added reseller can make money, which is the end goal. But I just found it fascinating to learn about what it means to manage a specific practice. Maybe that's a future career step for someone like yourself, dear listener. You also heard a little bit of a hint toward the end there, or at least in the managing the practice section, we heard something about Jason managing people. We're actually going to hear more about that next time. A lot more, actually, because it wasn't the only time he's ever managed people. But that'll have to be next week. Just a reminder that we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. If this episode was encouraging to you, helpful for you, share it with a friend. Maybe they could use some tips and tricks, courtesy of Jason Langer. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. For my buddy John White at VJourneyman, signing off. <laughs>